So what do I care? Why should you care? Why should they care? Most people really don't. Is it because they don't understand what's at stake? Maybe they really don't understand who he really is. And I think many of those who call themselves Jesus followers confuse me more than those who claim no such allegiance. I mean, this study came out just last week. More than half of all U.S. adults, in fact, even 30% of us evangelicals, believe that Jesus is not God. Just a great teacher, they think. Which is crazy. That doesn't fly. A couple of other findings in the study. Apparently 65% of us evangelicals, nearly two-thirds, and every evangelical claims to be a Jesus follower. But apparently 65% of us evangelicals believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, which means he's not God. And nearly half of us, 44%, believe that when Jesus walked on the earth, he committed sins just like the rest of us. That's out there in the open. A few weeks ago, CNN host Don Lemon says, Jesus, if that's who you believe in, wasn't perfect while on earth. So why would you treat him as your God? And in one sense, he's absolutely right. If Jesus is not God, if Jesus sinned like all of the rest of us, why should I care? Why should you care? Why should any of them care? We have rather successfully tamed the most wild man ever, we think. But what if, what if Jesus really isn't the greatest teacher ever? Just. What if Jesus is way more than the first and greatest being created by our God? What if Jesus really is the one who breathed you into existence on purpose? Here's the deal. The real Jesus made the most outrageous, outlandish promises ever made by anyone what if you could keep those promises? Would you care then? And the real Jesus made some of the most outrageous, outlandish demands ever made by anyone. Kind of demands that make most people want to run away from him or tame him somehow. But what if surrendering to those demands was the key to experiencing what he promised? Would it be worth it? And here's the biggest one. The real Jesus made the most outrageous, outlandish claims ever conceived. A lot of people try to ignore these or blow them off. They are not the claims that would be made by maybe the greatest moral teacher of all time. But what if, what if Jesus was right? Would you care then? Should you? Well, let's see. See, the real Jesus, not their Jesus, but the real Jesus made these kind of blow-your-socks-off promises, kind of promises that if I said them and believed them, you'd be tempted to have me committed, kind of promises that if Jesus could keep them, you might be willing to sacrifice anything for them. Bottom line, 
I mean, in a nutshell, what Jesus promised is this. I'm going to give you a way better life in this world, and I'm going to give you an unimaginably better life in the next world. Now, I know a whole lot of people in our world go around promising a better life for you if you follow them. And the appropriate response most of the time is, yeah, right. But not many dare to promise an unimaginably better life in the next world after death. What if Jesus could keep his promises? What would you give? What would you give up to receive what he promised? And listen to what he said. Really listen to what he said. Jesus said, I have come in order that you might have life, life in all of its fullness, which means that without him, you can't expect life in all of its fullness. And I expect if you're doing life without Jesus, if you're ruthlessly honest with yourself, you'll admit that doing life without him isn't working out quite the way you dreamed it should. In fact, a whole lot of us Jesus followers aren't experienced that he's talking about. Is that his fault? I doubt it. I love the way the message translates these words of Jesus. Jesus says, I came so they can have real life, eternal life, more and better life than they could ever have dreamed of. What if? Which leads to a second wild promise. Here's what Jesus said. He actually said this. He says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Some of you guys aren't giving dying a second thought yet. Someday you probably will. Others of us aren't that far away from dying, a whole lot closer than we used to be. What if that's a promise that Jesus could actually keep? Up to receive what Jesus promised. In fact, Jesus says this. He says, everyone... Every single one of you who has given up houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, property for my sake, they're going to receive a hundred times as much in return and they're going to inherit eternal life. What if that's true? What would you not give up? Foolish, wouldn't it? And just in case you think, well, maybe these kind of promises apply to some, but probably not to me because I'm not worthy, listen to this one. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. This is God's truth. This is the truth. Those who listen to my message, every single one of you who hears my message, Jesus says, and believes in the God who sent me has eternal life. And they will never, ever, ever be condemned for their sins. And they've got a boatload of them. We all do, but we have already passed from death into life. What if Jesus is right? Do you care yet? Now, according to Jesus, according to the real Jesus, there's a cost. There's a big cost to following Jesus. It's going to cost you a bundle more than most people are willing to pay, which is crazy. I mean, seriously, life in all of its fullness in this world and unimaginably better life in the next world, living the kind of life you were made for, what could you possibly give up that would be more value than what you're going to gain? 
That's a definition of madness, isn't it? Refusing to give something good up. But there is a cost. He demands, Jesus demands everything. It's all in or nothing with the real Jesus. I'm going to show you three, just three versions of the same demand. Okay, here's the first. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, you can't be my follower. Here's the second. Jesus said, if you don't carry your own cross, don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my follower. And here's the third. Jesus said, anyone who doesn't give up, well, everything, can't be my disciple. So, Jesus says, if you don't hate your family, if you don't pick up a cross, and if you don't give up everything for me, you can't be a Jesus follower. That pretty much defines outrageous, doesn't it? Kind of demands that make most people want to run away or try to tame him somehow. But what if surrendering to these demands is the key to experiencing what he promised? Would it be worth it? Would it be worth it to you? Now, the message actually softens that first demand up a little bit. It says, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, even his own life, can't be my disciple. New Living Translation softens it similarly. It says, you must love me more than your own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even more than your own life, otherwise you can't be my disciple. The one I read first, however, the NIV is more literal. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even his own life. Now that's harsh. Jesus said, if you don't hate your family, if you don't hate yourself, you can't follow me. Now, I'm not saying the other translations are bad. They're not. God doesn't contradict himself, and God tells us a whole lot to love our parents and love our spouses and love our kids and even love ourselves, Right? What Jesus is saying this, loving God and following his son has to be so important to us, Jesus followers, that by comparison, any other devotion that we have is almost nothing. Any other devotion. Real Jesus has to be more important to you than your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your wife or your husband. Real Jesus has to be more important to you than your kids and your grandkids. He has to be so important to you that there is simply no competition. You believe that? Then Jesus says, anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And it was a powerful, powerful image back then for them. It has lost so much of its power for us. Our crosses are clean, smooth, and not very heavy. In fact, some of them are quite small, very attractive, very discreet, so they can be hidden when necessary. We put crosses on our walls, hang crosses from our necks, ornaments, decorations, symbols perhaps. But we've never actually seen one work, except maybe in the movies. They had. 
They'd seen criminals dragging crosses to their places of total humiliation and excruciating pain. Perhaps they'd even watched as nails are pounded through skin and muscles and bones and sinews. Perhaps they had watched as blood flowed in the wretched pale. Fought for hour, for air, for hours, and maybe even days. Undoubtedly, they had seen those bodies left on the crosses till they were eaten by animals or rotted. Jesus' day, they didn't put crosses on their walls as decorations or wear them around their necks as jewelry. Their crosses were real. And when Jesus says, anyone who doesn't carry his own cross and follow me can't be my disciple, he's saying, don't follow me if you're not willing to go all the way. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it like this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is a demand worthy of God. And then Jesus makes his third outrageous demand. It kind of wraps it all up. He says, so no one can become my disciple without giving up everything for me. I like the way the message puts it. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what's dearest to you, whether plans disciple, Pretty much says it all. You're willing to put Jesus before any person in your life, any possession in your life, any pleasure in your life, any pursuit in your life. Are you willing to simply put him first in everything? Jesus demands. Now, demands like these would be completely outrageous on the lips of any man. Wouldn't they be? Any man who made any demands like these would be a megalomaniac or diabolically evil. But what if Jesus wasn't just a man? Would you actually want a God who would demand less? So who do you think he is? Isn't that what this boils down to? Who is he really? Is he the kind of guy who can keep his outrageous promises? Is he the kind of guy whose outrageous demands need to be taken seriously? Who is he really? I can tell you who he claimed to be. And his claims are the most outrageous of all, I think. You know, a whole lot of people claim to have been taken up to heaven at some point, maybe for a vision or some near-death experience. In fact, Islam is based in part on Muhammad's claim that he was escorted through heaven by the angel Gabriel, where he met guys like Adam and Abraham and Moses. Well, Jesus' claim is way crazier than Muhammad's. He didn't claim to have gone up and peeked into heaven once. He claimed to be part of the God who lived there. He would come down to earth for a short time on a mission trip, kind of like. I've come down from heaven. I haven't gone up there and peaked. I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And when he said this, those who were not his followers began to grumble, no kidding. 
about what he had said. And even some of his Jesus followers, well, a lot of his Jesus followers said, this is hard to understand, no kidding. Who can accept this? And I think I would have struggled too, and I think most of you would have struggled too, because we hadn't seen the resurrection yet. Now, Jesus said some other crazy stuff. But now I opened it up this morning by telling you that about half of us think Jesus probably sinned. Right? Sins of omission or when you know to do something and you don't do it. Sin of commission is when you do something that we shouldn't. And it's not just about what we do. Sin isn't about just what you do. It's about what we think as well. And in the history of the world, no human being has ever claimed without, with credibility that their words, their actions, their thoughts, their motivations are completely pure, that they are without sin. Even the greatest religious leaders of all time all admit they're sinners, except Jesus. Jesus is out there calling on other people to repent, but he actually says this, who can accuse me of any sin? That's amazing, isn't it? But he had to have, right? I mean, everybody sins some. No one's perfect. We're only human. Even 40% of the teenagers who claim to be born again believe Jesus sinned while on earth. And 52% of the teenagers who attend a Protestant church like Capital City, over half believe that Jesus sinned like the rest of us while on earth. Which I think gives us permission to blow him off occasionally when we want to sin too. Jesus, the real Jesus, actually looks at us and he says, Who? can accuse me, truthfully, of any sin. And what's even more amazing, perhaps, is those who were closest to him, those who knew him best, all bought it. They all did. Here's the Apostle John, who may have been the disciple who was closest to Jesus. What would those who were closest to you say about you and your sinning? John says, you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. None. His closest friend said that. Apostle Peter, his number one student. Peter says, Jesus committed no sin, none. No one ever heard a lie come from his lips, ever. Here's the Apostle Paul. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And here's the writer of the book of Hebrews. Jesus faced all the same testings, all of the same temptations that we do. He didn't sin. All of those who were closest to him, all of those who knew him best, and not one of his enemies could prove otherwise. What evidence do you have that the apostles were wrong? That Jesus was wrong? And then he claimed this. And guys, in a world that prizes inclusivity like ours, this is absurdly outrageous. 
Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and nobody, no one can come to the Father without going through me. I'm the only way to God, he says, the only way. I'm the only truth of God. There is no your truth and my truth. There's God's truth and it's measured by him. He says, I'm the only hope you have for real life in this world and an unimaginably better life in the next. That's the real Jesus. These are maybe the most arrogant, most intolerant words ever spoken. And they are almost... But not quite, because Jesus claimed more. But before I get to his most outrageous claim, I need to do just a little tiny bit of setup. I want to go back and look at one of the most famous scenes in the Old Testament story, Exodus chapter 3. Moses is out tending sheep. He sees this bush that is burning, but it's not burning up. Remember the, uh, remember the movie, Prince of Egypt, right? Moses wanders over to the bush. He hears a voice. He recognizes somehow that the voice is from God. And the voice says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. I'm the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. The voice tells him, I want you to bring my people out of the land of Egypt. Remember that? Here's the important part. Moses says, what do I tell them your name is? Who are you? God says, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am. I am. The Israelites came to recognize I am as the name of God. That's what they understood as the name of God himself. And all the way through the Old Testament, God is called Yahweh. They actually didn't pronounce the name. They considered it too holy. Whenever they saw the word Yahweh, they would say the Lord. In fact, in your Old Testaments, if you read through it carefully, you'll see the Lord all over the place. And oftentimes it's written with all little caps. That means it's not really the Lord. It's Yahweh, the name of God. We're not even exactly sure what Yahweh means, but we do know it means something like I am. Maybe it meant something like, I'm the one who always is. Or I am the one who always What we do know is it means I am. It was God's sacred name. You don't play with God's sacred name. Now, let me tell you what Jesus claimed. Let me translate it for you literally from the Greek. Jesus says this, for unless you believe I am, you're going to die in your sins. Now look at it carefully. Jesus doesn't say what he is. He simply says, unless you believe I am. Unless you believe I am the I am, you'll die in your sins. And in case you misunderstand, four verses later, again, let me translate it literally. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's what Jesus called himself. When you've lifted me up, you will know that I am. I am the I am, Jesus said. And at the end of the same chapter, Jesus does it again. Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, before he ever was, I 
am. Jesus was claiming. Because it says that in their fury, they started picking up stones to kill Jesus for his blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Jesus slipped away because it wasn't quite time yet. Michael Green, great scholar, puts it like this. He says, Jesus' words are simple, direct, and devastatingly bold. Jesus takes the name of God and claims it as his right. Where I am, God is, he says. Where I teach, God teaches. Where I act, God acts. Where I promise, God promises. Where I suffer and die, God suffers and dies. He says it's impossible. What if it's true? I'm not going to try to prove to you yet that it's true. That's going to come in a few weeks. I just want you to understand and acknowledge what's at stake. Why do I care? Why should you care? Why should they care? I mean, most people really don't, do they? Should they? Is it because they don't really understand what's at stake? Is it because they don't really understand who he really is? And what if, guys, what if Jesus really could keep his outrageous promises? Wouldn't that in itself make his demands seem more than reasonable? And bottom line, what if Jesus really is who he claimed to be? Wouldn't that give him the right to make those demands? The power to keep those kinds of promises? What if he's right? C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, he reasoned that we have three options, right? Three options, and I think he's dead on. Either Jesus was a lunatic who needed to be locked up, or Jesus was a liar who deserved a cross, or Jesus really was who he said he was, so he can really do what he said he could do, which means that his demands are most reasonable, really. Here's how Lewis put it. He says it like this. He says, any man, any man who was had the sort of things Jesus said, he'd either be a lunatic, I love this line, on the level of a guy who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this Jesus was and is the Son of God, or he's a madman, or he's something worse. He says, he goes on, you can shut Jesus up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him your Lord and your God, but don't come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. Why do I care? Because I buy it. Do you? We believe him. Which explains why we are the way we are and why we do what we do and why it is so critical that we rebuild this church. 
It explains why Jesus is more important to us than our families, our jobs, or anything else that we'd love to do. It explains why doing life with Jesus, for Jesus, his way, is more important to us than what any other human wants us to do. I don't care who it is, your governor, your candidate, your president, anyone else who has authority over you. It explains why doing life with Jesus, for Jesus, his way, is more important to us than any other cause that we might want to invest ourselves in, no matter how noble. It explains why we gather as a church week after week after week, reminding ourselves who we are and what we stand for. It explains how critically important our mission from God is, bringing people face to face with this Jesus and then dragging each other to heaven. Because guys, it's all about him. It's all about Jesus. We're in. Are you? If you're not, we need to talk. If Jesus isn't the Lord of your life, we need to have a conversation. We think that's where life starts, both in this world and, of course, in the next as well. And if you want to talk about making Jesus the Lord of your life, hang around here right after the service. Go to the prayer room in the back. One of our elders would love to talk with you and pray with you. It may be that you're a Jesus follower, but you're not in, all in yet. Well, it's the time to let go. It's the time to let him have that first place in your life. I'm going to pray for you. Pray for us. We're going to sing one more song. And if you've got some praying to do with your Lord, just get it done. If you want to talk with us, let's get that done. Why don't you bow your heads with me, please? Father, for Jesus, we give you thanks for your incredible grace. We give you thanks for the power that you demonstrated to keep your promises. We give you thanks. Give us the courage, the wisdom to be people of God. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.